Woo-woo. It's good to see y'all. How we doing? All right. Great music this morning. It's good to worship with you. And it feels good to be back up here. I've been four weeks. That's the longest I've not been up on this stage preaching in the history of Genesis Church, 17 years. Thankful for the guys that, uh, that like, you're not sure whether to clap or not there. I get it. Uh, <laughs> yay. Oh, wait. Uh, um, but, it, but, but I'm thankful for the men who preached. And it, it was a nice break. Part of it is we went on vacation and a little more about that in a minute, but uh, man, it, this has been a challenging but hopefully good series for you. Uh, if you haven't m- caught all of it, I would encourage you to go back and listen. And even more than that, it's, it's based on questions raised in a book by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. I love her, her writing voice in the context of Christianity. Uh, her background is that she's, she was a skeptic and comes out of, you know, you could read her story in the book, uh, out of uh, some lifestyle challenges. Uh, and then Christ found her, and now she is uh, in Boston, uh, in the shadow of Harvard uh, University uh, and, and the MIT, and uh, she is having conversations with the, the deepest thinkers in our country, but trying to point them to Jesus, and wrote this book to help us think about these huge questions that people in our culture are asking. Maybe you're asking them. And so uh, th- we hope the series has served you. Uh, early, we really encourage you to get the book. And if you're like, if you came in the last couple of weeks and you're like, oh, I didn't even know this was about a book, I would, I would just challenge you, uh, go to Amazon, buy the book, Confronting Christianity, and spend some time just reading through it, uh, having her uh, bolster your faith and give you reason to believe. That's been part of our reason. It's for you as a believer, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, to give you reason uh, to, to understand the scriptures and believe in the truthfulness of Christianity. If you're a skeptic, to help you wrestle with these questions you may have, and for all of us to, to point people to Jesus as the hope of the world. And so that's where we've kind of gone. And uh, we are, uh, this is the last Sunday of that. Next Sunday, we're going to start something new, and I'm excited about the shift. For three weeks, we're going to do a short series. So if you're kind of new to Genesis, we're going to do a three-week series about the pillars of what we're about. We're going to explain just the core foundational ideas that shape us as a church, shape our community, shape our values, uh, and, and we're going to be talking about what that means for us as a church, but more importantly, what that means for you and what we hope will happen. If you're going to be part of Genesis, what we hope will happen into your life as you hang out with us, all right? So it's going to be an exciting series. We're going to call it the Pillar Series, and uh, just encourage you to be here for that. Uh, we'll kick that off next week. Um, but finishing up this one with a doozy, um, we did go on vacation. Two weeks we were gone. We were literally on vacation. My family, we went to, to uh, several places. We went to New York City hung out there for a couple days. We went to uh, uh, up in the Maine and went to Acadia National Park. Uh, like if you've never been there and you want to take a good va- family vacation, hint, good place to go. Right, we, got to, we got up really early one morning and saw the sunrise from the first place in, in the continental United States that sees the sun from a mountain in this park. It was amazing. Uh, it was like oh, unbelievable what we were able to see in that moment. And, and just so many good things, but uh, we, we, we hit uh, Niagara Falls. I was, like, I kind of went to Niagara Falls thinking it was gonna be meh, and it was, it's not. It's, it's spectacular. And uh, we hit Boston. I mean, just a lot of things. We went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was awesome. Uh, but one of the things we did, we planned as a family to go whale watching uh, together. So uh, we, we booked an excursion and spent an insane amount of money 
to take our whole family and go get on a boat and go see whales. And I was super excited about this. As we were getting ready to go, they took a picture of this. I got, a, got our family picture right there, right before we got on this, this boat. Uh, everybody's right there. There were 11 of us in total that took this crazy road trip all over the place. And uh, in my mind, this was going to be the highlight of the trip. And so uh, we went and got on the boat, and uh, our group went out. And, and we, th- th- our group saw all kinds of things. Our group saw puffins. We saw porpoises and, and, and dolphins. Uh, the beauty of the ocean, and eventually our group actually got to see this. We saw whales. Well, we, that, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, our group saw whales. Uh, in fact, I think it was a humpback whale, and it was huge, and mul- we got multiple pictures of this, the, the glory of this and, and for um, my kids, man, it was just one of those glorious moments. And I'd be a little bit careful with my words to say it this way because my experience on the boat was not what the rest of my family's was. They warned us as we got on, if you tend towards seasickness, you might reconsider this. And my daughter, who's, who was referenced in the prayer time, who lives in Chicago, and her husband went, we're out. They went and got a refund. They had a great morning together, walking around Bar Harbor, drinking coffee together, enjoying this. We got on the boat. I'm like, nope, I, I took Dramamine. I, I think I'll be okay. I've had experiences where I got a little sick, seasick before, but I uh, took Dramamine and uh, <clears throat> the boat pulled out and we hadn't left the harbor. And I went, oh no. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little queasy already. Like, they told us that we were eventually going to get hit three, feet, three foot waves and it was just going to be a constant three foot wave. We were at the stage where it was three inch waves and I was already going, oh, wow. And so I found the lady that, what I found out is this ship, this boat that, that take, it was, a, you know, maybe 100, 150 people would be my guess. They have people who they have hired who their one job is to help people who are getting seasick. Because by the middle of the trip, it was like the Coney Island scene from The Sandlot. <clears throat> it wasn't just me. It was like 30 people on the boat. And they have these people who all, their whole job is to walk around with little, little bags like this that they give you. And then a big trash bag so you can put it in it with a little, little twist tie. And then you drop it in a bag and then they give you another bag for the next time. Uh, and I lasted about four to eight minutes before... I experienced my coffee again. Um, and, and here it goes. And so they took me down to the back of the boat, right by the, 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 where the engine is, good breeze. You would think, okay, I get there. And for the next three hours, I sat back there. For those of you like, I can't believe he's talking about this on a Sunday morning from church. I'm sorry. Let me introduce you to Genesis. This is how we roll. <laughs> I puked and puked and puked, and puked. I did not see the whale. I wanted to. I fixed myself in one location and wasn't moving and became really good friends with the girl who kept walking up to me with the two bags. (laughs) One of the other family members who I'm not going to name just to keep their identity silent had a similar experience but landed in the bathroom and couldn't move and was on the toilet for three hours. And expressed to my wife, so it wasn't her, I expressed to my wife the desire that at that point in time she would just prefer to be pitched overboard than what she's going through now. <clears throat> and uh, 
the thought that, like, I was stuck there, and, and, and you know, you have no idea how much you use your diaphragm muscles to <laughs> express your seasickness. Every time I laughed for the next three days, I wanted to cry because my ribs hurt so bad. It was awful. I lost count at 10. 10 bags. Uh, it, it was the closest thing in this life that I've had to hell. I just wanted out. Like, I was just like, oh, dear God, let this be over. Oh, dear God, let that. Like, it was awful and a terrible. And what I thought was going to be this highlight. Now, my girls are like, it was amazing. I loved it. Josiah, like, Josiah puked once. And he's like, I got it out. It was done. And he took the pictures of the whales for us. Good for him. Kudos, man. I'm excited for him. But uh, my poor wife was running to three different locations and passing the 30-something other people who were having the same experience I did somewhere, different places on a boat, to take care of those of us in our family who were struggling. And she just kept coming and patting me on the back, going, it's going to be okay, honey, it's going to be okay. And I couldn't move. Like, I, I, when they were saying they found the whales, everything in me wanted to get up and walk over to the side and see them. And I was like, nope. I just, all I wanted was for the event to be over. And what I thought was going to be a glorious moment turned out to be a like this awful thing. Now, we, we're here this morning closing. Uh, and so so there's, there's my worst story from vacation. The rest was epic. It was amazing. Uh, I had a great time. But I wish I could have seen whales. Uh, but more than that, <clears throat> I turned to my wife. It, we were already planning next summer. Like I sat on the back of this thing. I looked right at her. We were planning our next summer vacation. We were thinking Alaskan cruise. And with my wife patting me on the back, saying it's going to be okay, I just looked at her and said, sweetie, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going on Alaska cruise next summer. <laughs> not going to happen. This is a three-hour tour, seven days in a boat where I'm doing this, like, not even going to risk it. I, like, it's just not going to be something that will be part of my life again, okay? Uh, now, we're closing. I want to open up with something kind of light and fun to think about this idea because we're, we're closing with this really, really tough question. How can a loving God allow people to go to hell. Like, it, it just doesn't feel like it fits. And for some of you, like, even in here, the fact that I'm entering into this, some of you in your brain, you're already going, see, here's these crazy Christians who believe this idea of hell. Uh, it's been used in culture to, to manipulate and use power over people. And that critique is fair. Um, but I just can't believe in that. I can't believe in a God who would do that. I'm out. I, I just can't believe. Or you've had friends and neighbors. But the, the truth of the matter is that if you're in here and you're like, I like the doctrine of hell, there's something really wrong with your spirituality. I, I mean, I, like I've been around these Christians who like they love the doctrine of hell and they want people to preach on it all the time and they get excited. This ought to be something that's really hard. Um, R.C. Sproul was asked, what is it about Christianity, that, that is the hardest for him, he said, it is the doctrine of hell. And so we're going to wade into that. But before we get there, I want to do something to kind of close out this series to set some things up. Because here we are raising all these questions, interacting them. And one of the questions we got to do is, how do you know? Okay, so we're here. We believe in Jesus. Uh, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we believe in Christianity. But all over the world, there's all these other worldviews, all these other systems of belief. There's secular people who just don't believe in any kind of God. Uh, there are uh, different religions that are monotheistic and pantheistic and all these different. How do we know that what we believe is true. Isn't that just arrogant? Now, I preached on that whole topic the very first sermon in this series, so I'm not going to re-preach this, but I, what I do want to do is I want to close, before I get to, to talking about hell this morning and how the Bible deals with this and kind of the logic of it, 
I want to say, I just want to encourage you that as you're here and you're having doubts or you're having questions, or when you have those moments in your life where you're doubting, you're like, man, this belief system, it's hard for me to get my brain around it. I just don't know. Let me give you three foundational truths or ideas that are anchors for your soul about the truthfulness of our faith. In other words, let me put it this way. When I have doubts, where do I run to reassure myself that I am not just believing something I made up or believing in a system that is just a religion that is kind of human made? How do I know that the faith that I hold in Jesus Christ is actually the true and living faith that comes, that has been revealed and given to us by the one true and living God? And there are three bedrock things for me that when I pause and I go, I, I have doubts, like thinking about hell, I have big doubts of how to navigate this. So how do I come back and, and, and re-anchor myself to go, okay, I know that what I believe is true. And I wanna give you those, it's gonna be real quick, but I, I would challenge you to write them down and in your own life, like delve into these deeply. Three things, three deep, three deep truths that help me know that my, my faith is real and it's rooted in truth and reality. And the first one is, is the, the basic idea of human nature. Uh, who we are as people. Um, what happens is that every other worldview has to, has to look at you and me and, and figure out, who am I? And we'll come up with theories and understanding of the human self. But only the gospel, the story of Christianity, actually gets our humanity anywhere near correct. Let me explain what I mean by this. The Bible helps you see who you are and the people around you through these two lenses that are both like infinite and glorious but, but hard to, to understand. And the first lens is to understand that you have infinite worth and beauty and value. You were created in the image of God. You have infinite worth, beauty, and value. That every human being shares that infinite worth, value, beauty, um, and that, that the God of this universe sees you through the lens. You are made in the image of God, and there is infinite worth, beauty, value in who you are, but also every other person. And that infinite worth, beauty, and value has nothing to do with your performance, what you can add to humanity. It is in who you are as a creation of God. Therefore, people with special needs, people who are not able to get, do things that add to the productivity of our, 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 uh, our experience and our existence as humans have equal value with people who are able to uh, build great things and, and run great companies and make tons of money, that our value is, is not rooted in what we do, it's rooted in who we are. And deep down inside, you know that. We feel that. But on the other side of this, there is this reality, this truth, that we are deeply broken and fallen. And in that fallenness, in that brokenness, in that twisting and, and the destruction of the beauty of our humanity, there is no fix from our side. I can't fix myself. In other words, inside of you, there is infinite beauty and infinite brokenness. Now you say, well, don't other worldviews hold this? No. If you go to secularism, Anything secularism, anything that a naturalistic sort of understanding of your humanity does, at the end of the day, you're just an accident. 
You don't have infinite value or infinite brokenness. You just are what you are through the process of evolution, through a whole bunch of random process. And what they do is they want to tell you in biology class when you go to a school that you were just like it was from goo to you by way of the zoo. I'll say it again, from goo to you by way of the zoo, you get that? And then they want to send you down the hall to a self-esteem class where they try to build up your self-worth. There's a pure silliness to that, a pure But we know, we, we know that when somebody gets murdered, something's not right about that. We see the beauty of humanity. There's something down deep inside of us that says this, our humanity deeply matters. And so we see that side of it. On the other side of it, there, every religion in the world looks at you and doesn't see infinite brokenness. It sees a divine spark where somehow you can fix yourself. Come to us and our religion will help you solve the problem. We will give you a step. If we would just follow this idea or that idea, and, and everybody comes and says, we could fix humanity if we would just do this. And so every ism is an answer to how do we solve the problem of our brokenness. And every ism collapses and fails because every ism creates a new form of oppression. No way around it. Only Christianity helps us see our humanity as it really is. This is like the Bible gives us a fully orbed understanding of humanity. It's infinitely beautiful, infinitely broken, and we can't fix this. The fix has to come from the outside. So I look at humanity and I just go, the Bible paints a very pure, clear picture of who we are as humans. Second big truth that I run to is the divine voice in the scriptures. The fact that when I open the Bible and I begin to read it and interact with it, I cannot get around the fact that there is a voice behind the human voices that are being, that, that's happening in the Bible. There are prophecies, there is a deep unity to the Bible, and more than that, there's this grand story that one author is telling through the pens of, six, uh, of over 40 different other authors. And I can't say, like, this is a whole nother sermon right now, but I'm just telling you, dive into the Bible and find, you will start seeing the voice of the creator in the pages of the Bible that we, we point you to and hold on to and teach from. And the third thing is this, the third thing, and this is the one that was like my ace of spades. They killed the dude on Friday and on Sunday he was alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, not as some mystical idea that is made up in religion, but as a historical event that really happened. Christ truly rose again. And the evidence of that is massive. I'm telling you, there is more proof that the Romans killed a guy on Friday and on Sunday he was eating fish than there is any other fact that we believe without batting an eye at any other fact in ancient history. There is more proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the fact that Julius Caesar lived. But if that event happened, now we gotta deal with who Jesus is, right? And so when I have my doubts, when I'm going, I, man, I don't know, secular world has a lot of questions. I go to biology class, they're challenging me. Like, this is what they're saying is true. I'm talking to my friends and they got these questions and I just go, I don't know, which is an okay answer. But realize somebody has answered that. When I get in these places where I just don't know how to interact and I start having doubts, I go, our humanity is what the Bible tells it is. We look like this and nothing else can fully explain it. Either they will lean into the goodness or the brokenness of humanity. They won't lean into both. Second, the Bible really is the word of God. And third, Christ rose again. And I'm just telling you, dig, dig deep there. Spend your life digging deep there. And when you have doubts that come from other angles, when you have professors, you have teachers, you have friends, you have your own doubts where life gets hard and your body hurts and you're just like, it's not supposed to be this way. You, can, you have some things that you can anchor your faith in to know that the, your faith in Jesus Christ 
is true. Okay? Amen? Do this. Now, with that in mind, here we go. How? We're, we're talking about this, this crazy doctrine that is hard to believe. And now, now we go, boy, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. And what I, my hope this morning is to help you understand that hell is teaching us more than just a, pl- a hot place where people go, where God with a nervous eye twitch is just throwing people into a place. That the, the whole biblical understanding of the idea of hell is actually a needed thing because of the first thing I said, the nature of our humanity. We have to wrestle with this. And so there's going to be a lot of thinking this morning. I know for some of you that's like, I don't like thinking on Sunday morning, but that's all right. We can do it together. We're going to do some thinking this morning because I want to take you through the doctrine, the idea of hell as it's presented in Scripture, but show you that there is a deep logic and and something going on here. Um, Theologian Peter Kraft from Boston College said this, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend and the most burdensome to bear and the first one to be abandoned. Now, this is coming from somebody who believes it. Peter Kraft is not rejecting it. He's just saying, listen, what happens is as our faith starts to be challenged, it's the doctrine of hell that's the first one we go, I don't know what to say about this. I don't know what to do with it. And therefore, I'm not going to believe in it. But what happens is once I pull that out, we actually have started a house of cards that's in trouble. And so we have to wrestle with this. Um, why should we believe this? Why should we hold on to it? How do we answer this question? And to do that, I want to take us to a story that Jesus told. So grab a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles and baskets around the, the, the gym here. We'd love for you to have a Bible in your hands, in your lap, uh, open to this passage so you can kind of wade through it. If you have it on an app, that's great. But find a way to have a Bible in your hands so you can see it for yourself. Um, and what I'm reading, this is a story that is called, the heading will say, The Rich Man and Lazarus. It is a story that Jesus told, and I'll let the cat out of the bag before we read it. There is debate. Jesus told a ton of crazy, amazing stories. We call them parables. And there are stories that are pointing us to the truth of God's kingdom uh, and, and the way God works in the world. And this sometimes is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But there is debate over, in this story over whether Jesus is telling a parable, a fictional story, to point us to deeper truth, or whether Jesus is actually telling a story that is actually rooted in truth. And the reason we have to wrestle in the tension of that is because in this story, unlike any other story, when Jesus says there was a man, he names him in this one. And it's possible that where Jesus told the story and he names this man Lazarus, it would be somebody in their culture, they're like, oh, I know who that, I remember that guy. And, and for maybe some of the people in the story, not only do I remember him, I got so tired of passing this beggar every day and him always asking for something from me. Which then puts everybody who heard, if, if this is a real story, the people who heard it, Jesus is now putting them in one place in the story. And they're now, as they figure out, who do I identify with? All of a sudden they're like, oh, I identify with the rich guy. Um, and, and so there's a, th- that creates a tension in the story if it's true. The bottom line is it doesn't matter because the basic truth that Jesus is coming across here is true whether it's a parable or a real story. But it's possible that Jesus is not just telling a fictional story. And so here's a story. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed was what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to the, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, let's just deal with the story in the context of the larger gospel. Jesus is not sitting here creating a story that says rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. He, He is creating a picture that is framed in the idea of the covenant relationship God had with the nation. And he's looking at a person who was an outcast, a marginalized person, But at the end of the day, we need to understand that this person did believe the gospel, and the other person turned in on themselves. The rich man turned in on himself. As we read the whole Bible, there are rich people in heaven, there are rich people in hell. There are poor people who who will go to heaven, there are poor people who will spend eternity in hell. This is not a statement about these people go here, these people go here. It is a statement showing us in story form a reality. And the reality is that when the, the poor man was Lazarus, breathes his last breath, he is met by angels. On the other hand, when the rich man dies, he's just buried. Now, two things are happening here. Notice that we're not told that the poor man was buried, because he probably wasn't. He was probably just thrown on into this place that was outside the city of Jerusalem that was just a giant trash pit that was burning all the time. They probably just threw his body there. So even in the human side of death, the rich man is honored and blessed with a right burial, and the poor man is just discarded. Meanwhile, the angels meet the poor man. But the rich man isn't met by anything but death. And it says from Hades. This, this here is an understanding in Jesus. Jesus is speaking in an Aramaic, and it's being written now in Greek. Hades here obviously has a history that goes all the way back to Greek mythology, but here it really is just referring to the idea of the abode of the dead, the place where, where people who are outside of relationship with, with Christ would go. So it is a reference to the idea of, of hell here, uh, what the Bible is pointing us to hell. And Hades being in torment, verse 23, he lifted his eyes, saw Abraham far off, Abraham this being this father of the faith of the Hebrew people, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, what we do have is, is a reality. The reality that, that the Bible is going to present here is that hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment. And I would love to go, and let's just walk away and say, hey, we could soften this, we could curb it, we could shift it and come up with a different explanation here. But this isn't just here, it's, it's actually echoed all throughout Scripture, that our humanity goes on forever. But I want you to, I want you to notice something about this. We're going to come back to this. Notice that even in this situation, the rich man wants to use the poor man for his benefit. Who he was in life goes on in death. Jesus is brilliant when he tells stories. And and so death didn't end his humanity. Who he became in in his his earthly humanity carried on. He just, he looks at Lazarus and goes, tell that guy to come down here and soothe my suffering. Meanwhile, for his whole life, he walked past Lazarus who was at his door and ignored him, but sent his dogs out to lick his wounds. It's, It's disgusting no compassion towards the poor man, no compassion towards Lazarus, but now he wants Lazarus to be compassionate towards him. Abraham's response is very difficult. Abraham said, verse 25, child, remember, remember. You need to know that this is maybe the most 
like, is the Bible helps us understand this remembering is probably the most, the single most difficult thing about hell. Remember. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, you are in anguish, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There is a great chasm fixed. The, 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 the Jesus that is storytelling is telling us that this life matters because once we go into the other life, there is a chasm that cannot be gapped. What, what happens in this life is going to be carried on into our eternity. Uh, and so he says, verse 27, and he said, the rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That, now, Luke, who is, like if you've hung out with us, uh, you've been with us for a long time, you realize that, that the story of Acts is the story of the spread of the, the gospel after Jesus rose again. And one of the things we're confronted over and over again is that these religious people and these people all over the world, Christ rose again, he came back, they still don't believe. This is ironic and foreshadowing. They still are not going to believe. They have the prophets, they have the scriptures, but they don't believe the scriptures. Even if somebody comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe. He, it is a statement here about something going on in our humanity, but we have to wrestle with what's going on here. I mean, what is this idea of hell? And my idea of hell, my concept of hell was probably shaped more, uh, like I want to be shaped by the Bible, but let's be honest, if you're my age, your idea was probably, of hell was probably shaped by Bugs Bunny. Because Elmer Fudd and and Sylvester and almost all of them end up with some episode where something happens, they end up in hell. So I, I was like just reminding myself of this. I went back and watched a little bit of this one with Sylvester where he's going after Tweety Bird. He falls off this giant building. Now, if you haven't seen the, the Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and all that stuff, I'm sorry. You, it, like somebody help you get to these because they're still the greatest cartoons that were ever made. But uh, he falls off this building, lands and hits the, the pavement. And next thing you know, his spirit comes out of his body and he, like, he goes over to this uh, two escalators, a blue one going up, a red one going down, but the blue one has a rope across it that is blocking it. And without thinking, he just goes over, gets on a red elevator, goes down, goes down this giant spiraling you know, elevator and takes him down. And the further down he goes, the redder, the more flames, the hotter it obviously is getting until he gets down in front of Satan, who is a giant bulldog, right? <clears throat> it starts yelling at him. Meanwhile, behind him is this huge pit with flames and other bulldogs who are ready to get Sylvester and devour him. But it, like that, that somehow, somewhere that's kind of where we get our idea of hell. Now what's interesting is they're not far, like they are pulling images from, from here and some of the Christian, early Christian writers who wrote about this, these realities and that sort of thing. Uh, but is that what hell is? Is hell like your worst nightmare? So as a cat, it's a giant bulldog who's ready to consume you in a place that is hot. Uh, you know, and, and what's funny about the cartoon is he's reminded, well, he actually has nine lives, but in a period of four minutes, he spends all of them and, and ends up right back where he is. Is that what hell is? Well, I, I think we have to wrestle with what is really going on in hell. Is hell primarily about fire, brimstone, flames? Or is, is that pointing us to a reality that is, is deeper and harder for us to get our brain around, but is more real? And I think that's the main thing about hell is not 
fire, brimstone, flames. Jesus uses things like the, the worm doesn't die and gnashing of teeth and all this sort of stuff, which I, I'm not saying these aren't true and real. I'm saying they're trying to point us to a reality that is greater than this. In, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, Paul writing says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He's writing to Christians who are suffering, pointing them to the ultimate reality and telling them to hang in. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I want you to focus in on that last phrase, away from the presence of his Lord and the glory of his might. And I want us to wrestle for a minute about what makes heaven, heaven, and what makes hell, hell. See, in the Bible, the, Bible the, the authors of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are trying to point us to realities of which we have no category to understand. So to picture what is going to be glorious about heaven, you end up with these, these descriptions in Revelation, other places, things like pearly great gates and streets of gold and this, this giant gate that was made out of one giant pearl. And we get focused on streets of gold and mansions and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, heaven is this really cool place with really beautiful stuff, and I'm so excited to go there. And there somewhere is a giant, giant giant, giant clam that made a huge pearl. That's going to be fun to see, right? Like we get fixated. And what the Bible's doing is using language to bring us into a reality that we can't understand. It would be like trying to describe Disney World to your four-year-olds. You could describe it to them, but they have no idea what you're really saying, but you use some language that gets them excited about going there. But when you get to Disney World, their experience of Disney World, it's going to be even like bigger and better, hopefully, uh, well, or you're going to get there in the first day and it's going to rain and be terrible, which was our experience. But anyway, uh, bottom line is like you're, you're taking somebody with no sense of, like there is no experience we have that can be the, that a, a description of heaven can give us. But ultimately, what is heaven? Is it streets of gold, pearly gates? What makes heaven heaven? And the answer is Jesus. The, like every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Everything you have that is beautiful and rich and full on this earth came from the God who created you, who redeemed you. If it's good, it came from him. And we live, whether you're a believer or not, you are living in a world that you are basking in his gifts and his goodness and the elements of his presence. And we get it unadulterated forever in fullness. Every desire, every longing of your heart, if you're a follower of Jesus, is going to be fulfilled forever by the glory and the presence of our God. There's, yeah, that, that, that's worth cheering, I'm telling you. I love my wife and I love my marriage. There's not a whole lot in my life that, is, that, that, that fills my heart more than being in my family. And the Bible tells us when we get to heaven, we're not gonna need marriage. And my heart goes, I don't know if I like that. But it's, sad. it's saying, because, here's the reason, because marriage fulfills something rich and meaningful that when we're in the presence of God, we won't need anymore because there's something better. And if I hear that, I'm like, okay, I can't imagine something better. Yet, that's what heaven is. It is the presence of God. Then, then what is hell? Is it 
fire, brimstone. Maybe, but that's not the essence. What makes hell, hell, is that the God of this universe is going to remove every evidence of his presence in the lives of people who said, I don't want you. And so every blessing, every good and perfect gift and the very presence of God itself will be removed from their experience. And that's what makes hell, hell. And the Bible's just trying to give us language to help us understand this. Now, again, that's, that's really hard. I think about my neighbors and think, really, you're telling me that um, for eternity, this is the way it's gonna be? And what I want to do for just a few minutes here now is say, why do we have to hold on to this doctrine? And what is the logic behind it? Because let me tell you something. Let me warn you, whether you're a skeptic or a full-on follower of Jesus, if you turn from this doctrine, what you have turned into, are you ready? Is much worse than the doctrine of hell. You don't think it is but it's much, much worse than the doctrine the Bible gives us here. So that's it. I'm gonna spend a few minutes trying to build that as an argument, and I'm gonna give you three reasons why we gotta hold on to it. Three reasons why we need to believe this doctrine of hell. And the first one is, the first reason I wanna share with you this morning is we need to hold on because of who told us about hell. We need to hold on to this because who told us about hell you do realize this is Jesus' story. Like, we live in this culture where everybody's like, I love Jesus, the idea of Jesus, and I, I think I could be in on Jesus, but religion, organized religion, the Christian church, all that sort of stuff, I'm kind of out on that, and I don't believe, like, I just can't believe anybody who believes in hell, but man, I love Jesus. And what they've done is they've created an image of Jesus that is hippie Jesus who runs around, who, you know, has the long flowing hair, and is like, whoa, dude, and he just loves everybody, and he's just open and accepting to everybody, and, and, and they haven't really wrestled with the real Jesus. And, and what I want to tell you is, is that Nobody talks about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. It's not even close. And Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Uh, theologian D.A. Carson has told us that Jesus has more about God's judgment and, and the existence of a, of a final judgment than he does about a final blessing. So why does he do this? Why does Jesus do this? And what does it do for our belief in Jesus? And if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the catch. If I'm truly following Jesus, I can't pick and choose. See, here's what I want to do. I want to I grab Jesus and pull him aside and go, all right, man, we, we, we need to have a conversation here. Okay, let's talk. Let's talk, Jesus. Let's hang out. Uh, we, we're going to do a little consulting work here. People don't like this here. They, they don't like the doctrine of hell. And so what we need to do is we need to like, come up with a, a little different way of, of shaping this. Let, let, let's curb the edges and all this sort of stuff. Let's do a little PR and let's get it where, where our, like, because hell is so offensive. And it just turns people off and they're not going to believe in you if this is the way it goes. I want to help Jesus come up with a better solution to this. Or I'm going to hedge my bets and go, if you don't, I'm, I'm going to kind of, like, I'll believe some of the stuff that you are doing, but I'm not going to believe wholeheartedly in who you are. Let me explain that when we start trying to do good PR for Jesus around this issue, we're, we're actually stepping into Genesis 3 where we look at God and say, I don't want a God, I want to be God. I want to be able to dictate to you how the universe works and how the world functions. And every culture has something where Jesus ticks them off. 
Every culture will look at Jesus and find things of beauty in the person of Jesus, and, and every culture will then see things that Jesus has to say and the way he treats them and, and the way he interacts with the, the real world and will say, but I, I will believe in Jesus like this. I'm just not buying into this. And here's what's interesting. Please don't be offended by this. I'm just telling you the truth. It is only in white Western culture where people are offended by hell. If you go to places where people are massively oppressed, where their whole life is being mistreated and abused, they are hoping for Jesus to step in and judge their oppressors. It is only in places where, where people live in leisure without, where judgment is something that freaks them out. Now, you go to these other cultures, there are other issues where they look at Jesus and go, I'm not gonna believe that about Jesus. Every culture has something, and at the point where we look at it and say, listen, I'm gonna believe in Jesus, but I'm just not gonna believe in this aspect, what we're really doing is saying, I get to be God, not Jesus, and I'm gonna rule the way, like I am going to barter and negotiate what I believe. And listen, that is the first step to not believing in Jesus. And by the way, if we don't believe in Jesus, we got a problem based on his words. I love you, Christian, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't blow this off and go, I'm just not, I'm gonna believe in Jesus. I'm just not gonna hold that. He's the one who told us the most about this place and the reality of judge, judgment. But why? And the second reason I want to share with you this morning is what hell tells us about God. It's what hell tells us about God. We say, I just, I just can't believe in a God who would do this. But I want you to think about the alternative. Because hell is just, it's an expression that God is a God of justice. The justice of God, the idea that God is a just and righteous judge, that he is a just, like the idea of the justice of God permeates the Bible. In a few months, we're going to be preaching through the book of Micah, and we're going to talk a lot about the justice of God, that, that a core component of his character is justice. And, and what happens is that he made us in his image, which means we care about justice. Like there is something in, in our soul that, that, like I already said, looks at the goodness and the beauty of humanity and says human, humans matter. And when that is so abused and mistreated, there is something visceral in us that goes, this is wrong and it needs to be dealt with. When we hear stories of sexual abuse, of, of uh, genocide, like nobody goes, nah. Like, I'll be honest, it's actually a huge problem for, back to the secular worldview. Something in your humanity longs for justice, and it, there's no way that evolved. But, 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 but we, we want justice. We believe in justice. Where'd that come from? It came from a God who created you in his image. That's why you want justice. But our justice never works. On this side of heaven, our justice is always going to have human hands, the brokenness of our humanity on it. And so all of a sudden, everybody comes, and what we're going to do is we're going to create this, we're going to solve this issue of justice. And we should be involved in those things. We should fight for justice. But we just see over and over again that fights for justice are about getting this group of people who have power out of power because they've mistreated people, right? So we're going we're to make sure justice happens and decrease the power of this people, and we're going to increase the power of this people. But all of a sudden, these people, when they get in power, don't become the good, altruistic, loving people that we thought they were going to be. They turn out to have the same problems expressed in completely different ways. All you got to do is study the French Revolution to figure this out. 
The French Revolution was going to throw out the power of the, the church and replace it with secular power. What came in after it was demons that were way worse than the church. So how do we fix this issue of justice? Our only hope is that there is a final God of justice. When we say God is a just God, when we say God is a judge, what we are declaring to you from the scriptures is this, that the evil and the suffering and the, the, the horrible, horrible stuff in this world, the wickedness that, that is everywhere, the people who are, I'll say it out loud, brazen enough to pull up to a church building and steal air conditioners, which happened to Genesis this week in our office building. On two days, people just pulled up and stole our air conditioners. We live in a world where, where the brokenness of humanity is real. And what, what our culture wants is Barney for God. Right, you guys do remember who Barney is, right? The big purple dinosaur. <laughs> just come give me a hug. We want, what you want, like when you say, I don't believe in a God who judges, you want Barney to be God. You want a God who just gives everybody a hug and affirms you and makes you feel good about yourself. But I want you to think about where does that end? What happens if that is God? And there is no doubt about it. Listen, hear me. There is no doubt about it. If we do not have a God who is a God of justice, evil has the final say. The wick, like, peop, like we would love the idea that Barney actually changes people. But Barney doesn't change three-year-olds from being their little terrorist selves. Can I get an amen? The idea is beautiful. In a fallen world, it's an abject failure. And to have a God who says, when the dust settles, all accounts are gonna be made right and justice will reign is the backbone of a universe where we as people are broken, fallen, and choose ourselves all the time. So what is justice? Justice is an expression of hate. And you say, well, I can't believe in a God who hates. What about a God who hates your suffering, who hates evil, who hates racism, who hates sexism, who hates the abuse of women, who hates the abuse of children, a God who hates violence, a God who hates the evil in the world? See, see justice is God's way of declaring to all of us that he hates what has become of his world that he made because of our sinful rebellion against him. And more than that, he hates the fact that our humanity has obscured and twisted the glory of God, the ultimate good in the universe. But justice is also an expression of love. When you say God loves God is love, for God so loved the world. that, Like, we use that language, we want to talk about a God of love. But you need to understand that, that if I'm somebody who has been massively wronged, if, if, if I'm somebody in the Ukraine who has had bombs blow up my, my village, and I've been displaced, and now I'm headed to Moldova, and my life has been ruined, The most loving thing that anybody could do is to get justice for those refugees. Now, it wouldn't be very loving to the people who bombed it, but like justice is an expression of love. Or in other words, let me put it in this, 
this frame of mind. Um, imagine we have a trial where somebody who has committed, con, uh, who has been involved in atrocities towards little girls is on trial. Now, the most loving thing that court could do for the person who's on trial is to look at them and go, we're going to let you off. We're not going to put you in prison. We're going to let you go free. But if that happened in a court, what would the message be to the little girls who were abused? And the answer is, that court would be looking at the little girls who've been abused and say, your life is meaningless. There's no worth. There's no value. Who cares about you? But we need to be loving. To who? Justice is an expression that says you matter, and when you've been mistreated, we're going to love you by dealing with the person who's done this. And this is what the, the justice of God is an expression of love, but it creates a massive dilemma. Side one is this. And I could ask you to raise your hand, and every hand would go up. How many of you have had, had somebody do an act of injustice against you? How many of you have been wrong, mistreated, marginalized, oppressed, been, been, been abused in a room this size? There's a lot of people in this room who've had some kind of either physical, emotional, sexual abuse. But the answer is all of us will go, yeah, yeah, for sure. And the best thing that can happen for you is justice for you, right? How many of you have done things? And this is what we want. At the end of the day, and I don't care who you are, this is, when you say, I don't want to believe in a God who judges, this is what you mean. I want justice for me. I just don't want justice to me. But now we've got a problem because the truth of the matter is I'm both uh, uh, been harmed and I'm a perpetrator. I've, I've been involved. So I deserve to be loved by God through justice for me. I, I also deserve the wrath of God justice to me because God's justice is an expression of both his hate and his love and my fallenness, my rebellion leaves me in a place where there's no remedy except one, right? That's why we believe in Jesus. And so ultimately what I want you to understand is if you're like, I don't want to believe in hell, I don't want to believe, therefore I don't want to believe in a God who judges, I don't want to believe justice what you've done is you've just created in your own mind a universe where evil will have the final say wickedness will win racism, sexism, abuse, who cares? Hitler dies in the arms of his lover, and that's it. He wins. It is the justice of God that says there is a final say. But, but hell also says something about us. <clears throat> and I'm like, I got to hit this really quick, so not, let me just make this real simple. Hell says that your humanity actually matters. See, if you're going to say, I don't believe in hell, you've got to come up with another alternative. And for people who, who, who their lives aren't, aren't reflective of any goodness, which is all of us, one is that God just stamps you out. But that is God looking at your humanity going, your humanity doesn't have any real worth. Uh, another option is that God goes against your will and says, I don't care what you wanted in this life. When people said, I don't want you going but I'm going to make it happen. Like, there was this whole movement towards this universalism uh, about 40 years ago in Christianity. And what happened is they said, listen, what we have is a, the world is filled of secret Christians. They're people who are really Christian, but they believe in other religions, but God is going to let them in. And what happened is the other religions of the world got furious because they got what they were saying. We're right, you're wrong. 
but you don't get it yet, so you're religious, so God's gonna be okay with you. And they said, wait a minute, that, that, that is abusive to our religion. They're right. At the end of the day, there is the God who has given us the gospel and the religions who say, you're pretty good, find your own way, which is a way for me to ultimately be God. And in that, the God of justice has given us an option in the gospel. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Uh, he said, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God are those to whom God in the end days says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Now, here, here's the point that he is saying. He's saying, like, he's not saying that I'm here today and I'm, I want to go to hell. That's what my, like, there's some people in the culture who said that. What he's saying is that you choose your own path of self-salvation rather than trusting in the one true and living God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the remedy to hell? Well, our problem is that we all deserve it. God's justice means that we all deserve it. So how is that dealt with? And, 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 and uh, the answer comes to us from 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we, in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened on that Friday at the cross? And here's what happened. The God of justice said his, like God's wrath, his determined anger about what is wrong in the world and his determination that it will not win, it will not have the final say, and that is pointed to each and every one of us. The Son of God lived the perfect life and, and therefore he did not deserve one ounce of God's justice. And as the judge had the right to judge all of us, but he took off his robe and he stepped into your and my place and he took God's justice for us. The gospel story is not about self-salvation, find your own way, nor is it about God going, you get it going, like it's not two elevators and the good people go down up and the bad people go down. The gospel says nobody deserves it and Christ has died for everyone. There is a remedy to hell. There is a remedy to justice. His name is Jesus. He gave his life for you. He died in your place. He literally on the cross went to hell. He looked to his father and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The presence of the father was pulled from the son. On the Christ, Jesus tasted hell for you. You don't have to go there, but your path gets there because your path looks at that, the true and living God and says, nope, I'm gonna make God my image so I can control my own destiny. The only way we get heaven is by grace in the person of Jesus, getting what we don't deserve, running to him and, and leaving our path, leaving our, 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 our barriers, leaving our doubts and saying, listen, I believe and I trust you and I will follow you. Does that mean you have to believe in hell? Yes, because it's following Jesus. It's hard, but it means we have to know that like I'm placing my life and my beliefs in his hands. I believe you. Now I know this is really hard and really deep and intense, but if you're still here and a skeptic, I really want, like don't leave here just doubting me and getting mad. I want you to stop and ask yourself the question, if God is not just, what does it say about the nature of the universe? 
And I want to tell you that the answer to that question is way worse than the doctrine of hell. But you don't have to go there. Christ has died for you. He's enough. Rachel Denhollander was one of the little girls who was abused by a guy named Larry Nasser and became kind of famous in the world because she was the first person to blow the whistle on the man who abused hundreds, sexually abused hundreds of little girls in like USA Gymnastics and um, uh, <coughs> Michigan State Gymnastics. He used his role as a doctor to fondle and touch girls where he had no business doing. And the story is awful. And she was the first one who finally said, as a young adult, I'm gonna step up and, and I'm going to bring an accusation. And in the accusation, at the end of the day, hundreds of girls came forward and he got tried and convicted of the horrible things he did. And it would have been a travesty for the court to do anything except put him in prison the rest of his life, which is, in human terms, justice happened in that courtroom, but it's still not enough, we know it. And so she gave a victim statement you can find it on YouTube. It's about 45 minutes long. Rachel knows Jesus. She has found the gospel. And she believes. And she gave one of the most compelling calls for both justice and pictures of the gospel that you'll ever hear. She looked at this man who was standing in front of her at this point in time. And she said these words. But these words are for all of us. She said this, the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. That is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And Larry, if you turn to him, it will be there for you. The gospel has absorbed our justice. And so as the band comes, we're gonna sing to Jesus. This is a hard doctrine. It's a hard thing, but we're gonna sing to Jesus because it's not that there's no hope. There is a God of justice, and that justice has been absorbed. And we're going to sing to Jesus who died on the cross. We already say, hallelujah for the cross. We're going to sing to him. If you're here today and you're a skeptic, you have doubts, listen, don't leave without letting us have a further conversation with you. If you're here today and you haven't believed, you're, you've been on the fence and you're not sure if you've trusted Jesus, please, I beg you, let us share Jesus. Trust in Christ today. Just right where you are while we're singing, lift your heart and just pray, God, I deserve your justice, but Jesus died on the cross and I wanna give my life to you. Like just where you are, trust in him. And then after the first song, we'll have some people over here uh, in this corner who are there to pray. If you just need prayer today, if you just need prayer, come pr let us pray with you and let us give you hope in the gospel today. But if you're here today and you're unsure about your faith or you haven't trusted in Jesus, please don't leave here today without running to Christ and trusting in the goodness of God. And for all of us who know Jesus, just one final admonition before we pray. If everything that I know is true, I just said is true, 
then it should change our posture towards our culture and our neighbors. We have got to get the word out. We've got to make our lives about letting people know that there is hope in a world where justice is real, but grace is true too. And we have to tell our neighbors and our friends and, and invite them to church and that sort of thing. It ought to be something that is passionate for every person. We do that. So let's pray and let's sing and let's celebrate the one who has done this for us. Lord, we love you today. I just pray for uh, your kindness in our lives and thank you for the gospel. And I just pray, Lord, as we wrestle with this deep issue, you will help us to hold on to your true words and believe in you. And I pray that anybody here who is bound and destined for your justice, I pray that today will be the day that they find grace. In your name I pray, amen.